welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. My name is Jeremy, and I'm a sexaholic. Uh, this is the first time I'm doing this over the phone, so I'm going to try and get used to it. Since everyone, uh, I guess, is on mute, I'm not going to know if anything I'm saying is funny or not. Um, but I'm going to do my best. Um, so I will um, tell you a little bit about what it was like, but I hope to spend most of the time talking about the incredible solution that this meeting, that, that this program offers. Um, and, um, and it's not just saved me from acting out, um, but it saved me from living a life where I was essentially trying to just blot out the miserable consciousness of my existence. So uh, for me, um, sex and lust and getting into inappropriate relationships uh, was my default position from a very young age, and um, I didn't understand that there was such thing as sexaholism, and I just thought that I was an evil, um, perverted man, and I... um, eventually came up with a theory that uh, I'm Jewish, for anyone who wants to know, and I came up with the theory that I must have been a descendant of those guys who came with the Jews uh, going out of Egypt, called the uh, multitudes, and uh, I must have been a descendant of one of the people who instigated the, the, the golden calf, the whole story of the golden calf, and that, uh, in fact, that's the reason why I was behaving the way I did. And um, I came up with that theory, and at that point I decided that my situation was utterly hopeless, and I decided to uh, down a lot of powerful medicine, and uh, my best solution was to try and kill myself. Um, now, I've spent a lot of time learning about triggers, that I have to avoid triggers, but I've got to tell you, uh, about 24 hours later, I woke up uh, on a breathing machine and a catheter and a heart monitor. My wife was looking over me, and she said that she knows that I stole a lot of money from her father. She knows what I did with it, and that I have just woken up from a major brain seizure, and that she's very angry with me. And at that exact moment, a beautiful nurse It may have been a beautiful nurse. I may have been hallucinating. Um, But I believe a beautiful nurse walked by the ICU room, and all I could do was gawk at her. And I cannot to this day work out what that trigger was. And eventually I came to realize the reason why I act out, the reason why I gawk, um, is because I'm an addict. And I, I don't need to know more than that. Um, I thought that perhaps the solution could be bought, and I went to three different rehab centers, um, spent well over $100,000. 
um, really of other people's money. The community raised money for me in hopes to save me. And I came back from the last rehab, having been separate from my family and children for six months, feeling like a million bucks. And I thought, this is it. Physically, I felt fine. Mentally, I had addressed and dealt with many traumas. I had uh, built a little bit of spirituality and a practice of meditation. And there I was in Toronto going to meetings and feeling like I really had something to offer. And I even started sponsoring somebody. And after about a month's time, the obsession started to come back. And I started to discover for the first time what would later be explained to me properly when someone took me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was that I have a voice in my head. It's a liar. It is such a clever liar. It has a very convincing tone. Um, you know, for me, it sounds like um, Morgan Freeman, right? Anything Morgan Freeman says, I completely believe. And, um, and I believed uh, what this liar was telling me. And it would tell me things like, you know, Jeremy, there's ways that you could act out that's not really acting out, right? You can edge or you can fantasize or you can look in this uh, magazine of, uh, you know, of spas and, uh, you know, they're not uh, rug and tub type, rug, you know, rug and tub type spas. These are, you know, these are kosher spas. So you can look in there and, and get your excitement from there. And, uh, or you can get a massage without anything further, right? And he would tell me these things and tell me and tell me, and I could not stop the voice in my head. And there's always that moment where I know at some point this is three-dimensional and I am going to act out, and there is nothing that can stop me. I'm not going to know how it started, and I'm not going to know how it ended. And so as that was happening, I met a person who had a light on behind his eyes. I met him at a meeting, and I didn't even believe that he was sexaholic because he was so happy and joyous and free that it didn't seem possible to me. And he told me he went through these 12 steps, and he did it pretty fast as well. And he asked me if I wanted to go to a meeting where I could meet more people who did these 12 steps like he did. And... I went to that meeting, and then I saw another 40 people who had that light on behind their eyes. These guys weren't white-knuckling their way through one day at a time. These people were really enjoying life. They weren't not acting out because it was, you know, an effort every day. They didn't feel the need to act out. And I wanted what they had. So I followed that man outside of the meeting, and I said, listen, I need you to take me through the book and, uh, and, and show me how to do these 12 steps. And he said, well, you know, I'm working with, uh, you know, I'm working with four guys, and I'm pretty busy. And I said to him, well, I'm not giving you a choice because I heard you in the meeting say that you working with other addicts is what saves your life and what keeps you happy, joyous, and free. So I'm here to help you out. And he was still a little hesitant, and uh, he said, well, I'll tell you what, you get a copy of the big book, and you get these six colored uh, highlighters and a pen, and you call me once you've collected all that stuff. And of course, I went to the early AM meeting of AA, picked up a big book, I got all the highlighters, I had to go from shoppers to staples to the dollar store to get this, because they didn't have all the colors he wanted in one package. And I called him the next morning, and I said, I'm ready. And we went through the book. Now, 
the first half of the book, an entire half of the AA book of Alcoholics Anonymous, does nothing but, but uh, solidify this idea that I have this voice in my head that is always going to win. It is always going to trick me into acting out again. There may be certain periods of time of sobriety that I'm going to have, um, but that will always one day be overruled, and I will have zero defense against it. No matter how hard I'm trying, if I'm avoiding my triggers, I'm going to therapy, I'm taking the right meds, I'm doing all those things, I will have zero defense against it. And I understood it because I did that. The other thing it told me is that as soon as I start... As soon as I've stopped at the traffic light and uh, a woman walks across the road and I decide to drink in that image, that I will not be able to stop. An allergic reaction takes place and it makes it impossible for me to stop until the laws of physics, you know, destroy me because I haven't slept for three days or I'm now homeless and I've run out of money or whatever it is. And so therefore... I'm basically in a hopeless situation. But then I got to a part of the book where it said, well, there is something that can help you, and that is a spiritual experience. And from that moment on, I wanted a spiritual experience more than anything. And my sponsor told me what I have to do is um, I have to now devote the rest of my life towards doing the rest of the steps and doing them constantly. They have to be with me always. And we have to start off by doing a serious house cleaning. And I have to face myself. And I have to take a look at all my resentments, all my fears, and all my harms. And I have to see my part in it. Where was I going wrong? And I have to see the vicious pattern and cycle that I engage in constantly. And the funny thing is is that from that moment on, the conversation was never about how are you going to avoid being triggered. Triggers were no longer a part of the problem. The problem was whether I'm having a spiritual experience or not. And it was stuff blocking me from a power greater than myself. And I needed to clear that stuff. And when we finished doing that inventory, he told me to take an hour by myself, just me and God, and thank him from the bottom of my heart for letting him help me remove the stuff that was between him. And I remember lying down on the grass, and I'm looking up at the sky, and I burst into tears, because for the first time in my life, I was able to say in absolute truth and clarity that there was nothing in between me and God. In fact, that's what I said, God, it's just you and me. There is nothing else. It was at that moment that the obsession left me. There was no more liar. Morgan Freeman went into retirement. And I was able to start thinking in terms of, okay, how do I clean up the wreckage of my past? How do I expand my spiritual experience? And how do I use everything I'm getting and completely give it away to another person? And constantly asking myself, how can I be of maximum service to this power that has saved me from hell and to the people around me? And that's what I did. And I enjoyed joy. I was able to build a level of intimacy with my wife and my kids that I never thought was possible. During the days of acting out or even during the sober time of being a dry drunk, 
I would see other fathers playing ball with their kids. And I would keep saying to myself, well, I'll play ball with my kids sometime. I'm just too tired now. I wasn't living life. I wasn't able to live life. There was no more room in my brain for anything apart from the obsession, apart from self. I was so involved in myself. And I got to enjoy that for two years. And then for three months, things started happening, and I allowed the, the stuff, the dirt, or the schmutz, I like to call it, that was in between me and God, I allowed it to pile up. I had a resentment towards my wife, and I reasoned to myself. Morgan Freeman came back, and he said, you know what? You've written so many resentment inventories on your wife. You don't really need to write more. At some point, you just have to acknowledge she's the sick one. And so I started to go along with that. And before I knew it, I had no access to power anymore. I ended up traveling to Ottawa on business, and I nearly got into a car accident. I was all freaked out, and suddenly the world of triggers was back in my life. And I was triggered. And there was that magazine of, quote-unquote, kosher spas. And I couldn't believe what was happening. I said, this isn't me. I'm not being normal. What about my sponsees? What about my wife? What about my kids? I said, I'll just take the edge off by taking a look at this magazine. But sure enough, that brain, that, that, that Morgan Freeman in my mind, not that Morgan Freeman's such a bad guy, he's great, but that's the voice I hear, and um, it was telling me, just look for that one sentence that indicates this spa is going to give you something more than a massage. And sure enough, I don't know if this was real or if it was just, again, another hallucination, I'm sure I saw a line in there that said, and if you want your more sensitive parts massaged, you can arrange that too. And then I was off. The allergic reaction was in full play, and there was nothing I could do but to keep going until the spree was over. That spree lasted a month of me trying my absolute hardest, everything I thought I learned about this program to, to stop was not possible. It was not possible to stop. I went to retreats, I went back to therapy, I did meditation, I did my work, I didn't know what was going on. The disease had progressed. Even though I was sober, the disease had progressed because it is a progressive illness, as the big book tells us. It doesn't matter whether I'm sober or not or in a place of feeling recovered or not. And then one day, I called somebody up in desperation. Harvey actually recommended him. And I asked him, you know, what do you think I'm missing? And he asked me a funny question. This man was not Jewish, but he asked me, how often do you say your Jewish prayers and put on your Jewish garb in the morning? And I said, I usually don't have time for that. And he said, well, what's your beef with Judaism? I said, I have a beef with Judaism? He said, you're born a Jew. What's your beef? And I realized that was a resentment that I was hanging on to. It was that little piece that I hung on to. And I burst into tears and I realized I do have a beef with Judaism. God didn't help me while I was acting out, while my life was falling apart, while I was spending tens of thousands of dollars on prostitutes. He didn't help me then. And I had a resentment. And I cried because I also knew that was the same God that gave me the last two years for free. He brought me to all the right people. He showed me something I could never work out on my own. And he said, I suggest you sit down and meditate and ask your creator how you can start again with him.
And I did. And I cried. And I did. And I went back and I wrote resentment inventories and fear inventories. And at the time, by the way, I was sleeping on the couch. I, was, I slept on a couch for four months. During that time, I knew I could not afford to have the tiniest bit of fear or resentment or harm, remorse from harm within me. And I would wake up several times in the middle of the night to write and meditate and pray and discuss it with someone and ask God to remove all the parts of self that was within me. And slowly but surely, I started to get better. And then as soon as I felt like I had something to give, I immediately started working with sponsees. I had to do something similar to what Bill W. did. Bill W. was working with other addicts while he was still in detox. I still had the obsession with me, but I also had some, something of a spiritual experience, and I needed to give it away, or else I couldn't grow spiritually. So I did. I called people. I was begging my sponsors, give me a little extra time. One day I drove all the way downtown and spent $20 on parking just so I could work with a lawyer friend of mine for half an hour during the lunch break because I needed it. I needed to help others, put myself more into someone else's mind to see how I can be helpful to them in order to help myself. And sure enough, the obsession went away again. And over the last year, I've discovered things I thought I would never discover. I discovered that I don't hear my wife's voice when she speaks quietly. I only hear it when she's yelling. And I've learned how to listen when she says something small like, you know what, I really need an ice cream. In the past, I would say, yeah, but we're rushing to your parents' house, so we'll have to do it another time. But now I say, you know what, Miriam, let's stop over and get an ice cream. Just do it discreetly so the kids don't see, because I don't want them having ice cream in the car. And she would. And we have these little intimate moments Right now, my daughter seems like, it's been a, it seems like she's heading towards failing grade six. So in the past, that would be a great reason to act out or be angry or be miserable. But today, I work with my daughter two hours every night. We sit in my car where there's no distractions, kind of like how I sit with some of my sponsees in my car. And we work two hours a night trying to catch her up, and we're going to continue doing that over the summer. I love it. I love the service. I love brushing my son's teeth when his teeth are suffering. I love every little piece of life that's coming to me. And today, triggers are not an issue. My office, where I'm calling from right now, is opposite a strip club. It has not dawned on me once to go into the strip club. There's no intrigue. Sometimes the dancers are outside having a cigarette wearing their lack of clothing. And I'm not interested. I'm just not interested. Life has taken on new meaning. So I guess I'll just wrap up by saying I'm incredibly grateful um, for these steps. But I I do not worship the steps because I try not to worship the fingers that point to God. But I'm incredibly grateful to this power, this power that is greater than me, that has humbled me and placed me in a situation where I strive for that humility to the best of my ability and I'm able to enjoy life and intimacy and love. And I really do thank you so much for taking the time to listen and to hear me out. And I hope that um, something of what I said could have been a service to all of you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. 
please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you.